chapter 13. Let me pray for us before we look into God's Word. God, thank you for this morning. Thank you, uh, as John uh, sang and led us to your throne room. God, you are a great, great God, a powerful God, a faithful God. I pray that this morning you would remind us of that, uh, the faithfulness of all that you're doing. God, I pray for us this morning as we come to your word. It's your word that brings transformation. It's only your word that brings uh, life to us. And so I pray this morning that now, Holy Spirit, you would open our hearts and our ears to what you would have for us. God, I pray for all the other churches uh, here in Murfreesboro uh, that stand on the gospel of Jesus Christ and proclaim it boldly. I pray that you would use your word to draw all men to yourself as you have promised. So we do. We pray for Lighthouse Church. We pray for Hickory Grove Baptist Church. We pray for Walter Hill Baptist Church. We pray for all the ministers of the gospel of Jesus Christ this morning, that you would empower them and that you would draw all men to yourself. God, it will take all, all the churches and all the believers to reach all of, all of your people. You tell us that in your word. So use us this morning uh, to reach your people. Lead us and guide us. We give you this morning. Uh, we pray this in the mighty name of Christ Jesus. You may be seated. Well, we're coming to the end of Nehemiah. If you haven't been with us, we've been journeying our, journeying our way through the book of Nehemiah. We're in Nehemiah chapter 13. Just as a quick way of overview, the, the series has been uh, God wants to rebuild his people. We have a God that rebuilds. And so we see Nehemiah goes back to the city uh, of Jerusalem, the holy city, to rebuild the walls of Jerusalem so that the people of God could have a place to worship God. We're going to end there this morning. It's going to be a full circle of that. That Nehemiah is more concerned about raising up the people of God to worship God than he is about his own name being remembered. And so this morning we want to come as we clear to the end of Nehemiah chapter 13. If you remember in chapter 8, uh, chapters 1 through 6 were all about the rebuilding process of the walls. And Nehemiah had heard that the walls had been destroyed and he, it breaks his heart and he goes back to Jerusalem and he has this plan to rebuild the walls so the people of God would worship God. And then in chapter 7, they, uh, it talks about the repopulation of the city. And then in chapter 8, it talks about the people of God desire God's word. You remember, we, they went for six hours and heard the word of God proclaimed to them. And then because of the word of God being proclaimed to them in chapter 9, we see that God brought great conviction. We'll see that again here in chapter 13. That God will always use His Word to bring great conviction onto God's people. That's the primary way that God does that. Is to use this Word to illuminate the places in our heart that are far from Him. That draws us to conviction. And then out of conviction, we must be led by the Spirit of God to confession. That's what we see in Nehemiah chapter 9. The people of God confess their sin to God. In chapter 10, we see the people of God, they make a covenant or they make a promise to God. Hey God, now that you, you've revealed to us in your word the places of our heart that are far from you, you brought conviction on that. We've led us to confession on that. Now we promise to live a life um, that is set apart for you. In chapter 11 and 12, last week we looked at how God empowers and supplies his people with their need when they return to worship God out of their confession. And so here we come to chapter 13. 
chapter 13 of Nehemiah, the story doesn't end well for the people of God in Nehemiah chapter 13, and that's where we have it. So here's the people of God had heard the word of God, they'd been convicted by God, they confessed their sin, they made a promise to God, they saw God empowered them, and now all of a sudden in chapter 13, we see the people of God had done exactly what they promised not to do in chapter 10. They had begun to intermarry, we see that in verse 30 of chapter uh, chapter 10, verse 30, they made a promise to God or a commitment to God or a covenant with God, God, that you set us apart to be a holy people, and so, God, we won't intermarry. It's not about race. It's about being a holy, set-apart people of God. And if they begin to intermarry, then they begin to pollute uh, the promises of God and the Word of God and the truths of God. We'll get that uh, this morning in this passage. That they made a promise to God, God, we won't intermarry. Here in chapter 13, they break that promise. In chapter 10 of uh, Nehemiah chapter 31, they made a promise to God to keep the Sabbath and to keep it holy. Here in chapter 13, just a few uh, years later, they broke that promise. And then finally, uh, what does Nehemiah and the people of God promise to do? They promised in Nehemiah chapter 10 verse 39, hey, we'll make a promise and a covenant to God that we won't neglect the temple, that we won't neglect worshiping God. And we see that here in Nehemiah chapter 13. Many scholars say it was about three years from the moment they made the promise to they began to break the promises of God. And I wonder for us here at Powell's Chapel, I wonder for my own life, how often I make commitments to God and then what is it that derails me from breaking the very promises I made to God? You see, these people in chapter 10, they were fully devoted to God and now all of a sudden in chapter 13, They're breaking the commitments they had just made to God. And Nehemiah is a great man. And Nehemiah gets word of this, and he heads back to Jerusalem. We'll see in this passage that Nehemiah had left the walls. They had left the people of God, worshiping God. The whole reason he had came to restore it. And he went back to the king to do what he had done previously, to be the cupbearer. To be with the king and to taste the food and to make sure that no one was trying to poison the food. And now all of a sudden, again, though we started in chapter uh, 1, we start in chapter 13. Nehemiah gets word that the people of God, their walls, if you will, had crumbled once again. Now, No, not their physical walls, but their spiritual walls had been depleted again. And so Nehemiah, it breaks Nehemiah's heart and he returns to the people of God to bring uh, confrontation to the people of God. He confronts the people of God. I think so often in our lives, if you're anything like me, uh, I hate confrontation. Anyone else hate confrontation? I hate it with a passion. I hate being confronted with my sin. But we need confrontation in our life if we're going to be the people of God. God will always use God's word and God's people to bring confrontation to our lives so that we will live a holy and set-apart life for Him. We need confrontation. So this morning, we're going to look at to remember us, O God. And the remembrance is, God, remember us and bring people into our lives that will bring confrontation. And so we'll start in chapter 13. The first thing that we see, this passage is broken down into uh, four sections. The first section is this. Nehemiah confronts intermarriages. We see in verses 1 through 3. Turn with me. Nehemiah chapter 13, verse 1. On that day, they read from the book of Moses and hearing of the people. And it was written uh, that no Ammonite or Moabite 
should ever enter to the assembly of God. So here again, they're reading God's Word. And what does God's Word do? God's Word always confronts sin. Always. And so uh, most scholars believe it comes out of Deuteronomy chapter 23, verses 3 through 6, that they believe that the people of God on that day were reading out of Deuteronomy, the law. It says that they were reading the law of Moses, the book of Moses, and there in Deuteronomy chapter 23, verse 3 through 6, it says, No Ammonite or Moabite may enter the assembly of the Lord. That's what he just said. So the likelihood they of reading the law of God, the law of God brings confrontation. But then, the very last part, just like it says here in verse uh, 2, it said, yet our God turned our curse into a blessing. You see, the people of God began to intermingle and intermarry with people, and there was a curse upon them, and yet God turned their curse into a blessing. We see this throughout Scripture, that God intends to, when He brings confrontation in our life, to turn what sin is into a blessing. What's the blessing that was turned in? We can flip over to Genesis chapter 12. The blessing is this. Now the Lord said to Abram, Go from your country and your kindred and your father's house to the land that I will show you, and I will make you what a great nation. And I will bless you and make you a, a, your name great, so that you will be a blessing, and I will bless those who bless you, and him those dishonor you I will curse and in you all the families of the earth shall be blessed. We see this over and over and over again. That when sin is confronted in our life, the same way that sin was confronted here, that God will always take that sin and turn it into a blessing. One of the most powerful stories to me about this is in Genesis chapter 50. If you know Genesis chapter 50, it's the very end of Genesis. And uh, the people, jo uh, Joseph, had been sold into slavery by his brothers. So that's not good. And what happened? He goes into Potiphar's house. Potiphar's wife accused him of, of raping her. That's not good. He flees the house. He ends up in prison. And you see this over and over and over and over, this man's story, him pursuing the Lord, and yet all of a sudden, all the sins of other people in his life, he gets to the very end of the passage in Genesis chapter 50, and he says this, As for you, you meant evil against me, but God meant it for good to bring about that many people should be kept alive as they are today. Whenever there is repentance, we see what God does with our sin and with the sin of other people. When there is uh, confrontation and there is revelation of the sin and there's confession of that sin, the same way that there's confession here in Nehemiah chapter 13, God always redeems our sin. Amen. Always but we'll always start with someone bringing confrontation into our life. Nehemiah had to go back to the people of God. Nehemiah had to bring the word of God to God's people to confront their sin in order for there to be a blessing that was poured out on them. Only the word of God and the words of God can bring blessing. I cannot bring a blessing upon another human being. God's word does that through confrontation and then through conviction and ultimately through repentance. We see that in Proverbs chapter 20, 28, verse 13. It says, whoever conceals his transgression or conceals his sin, we're going to see this at the end of the passage, this happens. The people of God try to conceal some of their sin. But the writer of Proverbs says this, whoever conceals his transgression will not prosper, 
But what? Whoever does two things, who confesses them and forsakes them, will obtain mercy. So it's not just enough for us to confess our sin. If we can confess our sin all day, but there has to be an ongoing confession and repentance. The repentance is the forsaking. Repentance means I was headed this way in my sin. I'm now going to confess and forsake, turn from my sin, and walk the other way. You see, that's what the people of God had to do. They had to confess their sin, and they also had to forsake their sin. There's a lot of believers that confess their sin, but they never forsake their sin. There's a lot of people that will go day in and day out and begin to confess all the things they've done, but they won't take the proper steps to forsake them. You see, if if you're dealing with an alcoholic, he can confess all day he's an alcoholic unless he removes the alcohol from his house. He's not forsaking the alcohol. He's not turning from it and ridding his life of the thing that will harm him the most. And I wonder for us, here at Powell's Chapel, two things. The first one is this. Do we at Powell's Chapel engage God's word daily so that it will bring conviction? You see, do I engage God's word the way the people of God did in Nehemiah chapter 13, verses 1 through 3? Do I engage God's word and sit with God's word and let God's word bring conviction onto my life? Because everything in our lives can be spoken to and about through the word of God. You see, that's what happened for the people of God, I believe. Somewhere between chapter 12 and 13, they had quit going to the Word of God. We'll see that here in a minute. We'll see that in verse 4 through 14. And so for us, do we engage God's Word so that it will bring conviction on our life? And then when that conviction is brought into our life, does it lead us to repentance? Does God's Word bring conviction, and then does God's word and revelation bring repentance? We have to have both. We cannot just be a people that have conviction and don't live without repentance. That will never bring life change. Conviction is not enough. How do I know this? Because I have a five-year-old and a -a one-and-a-half-year-old. They have conviction about a lot of stuff. They have very little repentance because they keep going back to the same action. Or if you're like Cedar, he, he just, like, you tell him no about something, no, go put that down, and he takes it and puts it behind his back. Like, I'm like, yo, man, you, you are about all of two feet tall, and I'm six feet tall. I can see behind your back. Like, you're not hiding it from me at all. But I wonder for us how we're like that with God. Like, oh, yeah, 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 you bring conviction, and now I'll hide that sin so that you don't see it. God sees it all. And so conviction has to lead us to repentance if we're going to live a godly life. The next is this. The promise is this. Remember, for those who confess and forsake, there is mercy. We do have a merciful God when we are convicted and the conviction leads to repentance and our repentance leads to life change. We find mercy. We have a merciful God. But just as we have a merciful God, we have a wrathful God. We will have to deal with God with our sin that goes 
unconfessed and unrepented. God's word tells us that over and over and over again. So the first thing that we see Nehemiah confronts in her marriages, the next thing we see that Nehemiah confronts the temple. Remember uh, the last promise they had made would they promise never to neglect the temple. And then in verses 4 through 14, we see that the temple had been neglected. It says, now before this, uh, underline that in your Bible, that's very important. Uh, the before this is talking about the conviction that they had read in their Bible. So even before all that happened about intermarriages, they had what? Before that, they had taken uh, Elishabad, the priest, who was appointed over the chambers of the house of our God, the temple, and who was related to Tobiah. Remember Tobiah back in chapter 4. Tobiah was an enemy of God. So now all of a sudden we have an enemy of God and one of the enemy of God's his friend leading the house of God. And now Tobiah, the priest had given Tobiah, the enemy of God, a large chamber where he had produced and put grains and offering and all the things that you would put to worship God. He cleaned those things out and put the things that they could worship other gods into. And so the very thing they promised to do, not to forsake the temple, they let the enemy of God come in and forsake the temple. I think for us, the breakdown of the people of God all started because they neglected their worship of God. Remember, that's the whole point of Nehemiah chapter 1 through 13 is the worship of God, that God's people would have a place to worship a holy God, to worship the God of their universe, to worship the, their creator, their maker, the one who sustains them, that they would worship him. And now all of a sudden, that's neglected. Whenever there's sin in our lives, we have to start to look backwards. If we have ongoing, unconfessed, unrepented sin, we must look in our lives and take a thorough examination and say, is the worship of God absent in my life? You cannot have full devotion of God and full unrepented sin of God. They cannot coexist. And so if you and I have unconfessed, unrepented sin in my life, I have to look backwards and say, where did my devotion and my worship to God, where did that go awry? Where did that go missing? Because if I'm fully devoted to God and have full devotion to God and full worship to God, I will not have unconfessed sin in my life. I'm not saying you will not have sin in your life. You will not have unconfessed sin in your life. That's what happened here in the people of God. They had ongoing unconfessed sin in their life. And so we see two things that happen. This is where uh, the word gets back to Nehemiah. Nehemiah, as I said earlier, had gone back to the service of the Lord, or to the king. He gets wind that the people of God had neglected the worship of God, and he returns, and he returns, and we see two things. The first thing, he returns, and he's not very pleased. Like, here's the man of God that God had sent to repair the walls, and within three years, they're back to where they started three like 13 years prior. And so, Nehemiah shows up to the scene. He's a little hacked off. And what, how do we know that? He goes into the temple of God, and he sees Tobias stuff in the temple of God, and he's like a crazy man at this point. We'll see how crazy he is here in a few minutes. But he goes into this dude's home, his chamber, and starts just chunking stuff in the street. I've heard many stories about wives chunking stuff in the street. It's never a pretty sight. 
But here's Nehemiah, a man of God, he goes and sees the worship that's been neglected, and he goes on a tear and just starts chunking stuff out the window. He's not very happy. But even more important about that, what we see about Nehemiah, Nehemiah is the foreshadow of Jesus Christ. Do you remember the story in Matthew chapter 21, verses 12 through 17? Nehemiah is showing us the importance of the temple of God. Jesus himself goes and cleanses the temple. Which, if you read that story, Jesus looked like a crazy person. I mean, he got a whip and started whipping people, throwing chairs upside down, tables upside down. I, I can just imagine all the birds and the chaos that just were flying feathers everywhere. Jesus is like doing a lasso around his head. I mean, crazy Jesus. But what is he so upset and displeased for? He's displeased because the people of God can no longer worship God. That's what makes Nehemiah a crazy man. That's what makes Jesus a crazy man. Because he knows the importance of intimacy with God and where for them intimacy happened was in the temple of God. You've got to remember, the temple of God is where God dwelt. You see, this is before the cross. This is before the death and the resurrection of Jesus Christ. Now you and I are the temple of God. And so how much more would Jesus want to come into our lives and eradicate the sin that's in our life? If, if we see he, do, he does that at the temple and he goes on a tear, now he's saying, hey, I am living in you and you are the temple of God. Do we believe that this morning? Do we believe as a Christ follower that the Holy Spirit of God dwells in me, dwells in you? If we believe that, then we will want to do everything we can in our own power with the conviction of the Holy Spirit to eradicate the sin that's in our life. Here's what one scholar says. I love it. He says, Nehemiah stormed in as violently as one day his master would. That, that was a violent moment. We'll see how violent Nehemiah is in a minute. Let's look. What does he do? He goes in three things. Three times we see Nehemiah goes and confronts sin. Nehemiah chapter 13, verse 11, it says, he confronted the, what, the officials. Nehemiah chapter 17, it says, I confronted the nobles. Nehemiah chapter 13, 25 says, and I confronted them. In reading this and studying this week, what convicted me probably more than anything else in the passage was this. Who did Nehemiah go and confront first? The leaders. The priests. And so for us, for me as a pastor, I need people to confront sin in my life. If you are a leader in this church, if you are a deacon, if you are over one of the committees, we need to eradicate sin from our life. Because where there is sin in our life, the gospel of Jesus Christ cannot begin to move forward. It's impossible. God's primary way of advancing his kingdom is through his people. And sin and the advancement of the gospel cannot coexist. And so what does Nehemiah do? He, Nehemiah goes and confronts the people of the city that allowed it to happen. He, he didn't go and, con, and necessarily con, confront Tobiah first. He went to the people, the other rulers in the city, and said, how did this happen? 
How did you allow this to happen? And then he goes real crazy in chapter 25 after he confronts them. He says this, And I confronted them, that's the officers and the nobles. He said, And I beat some of them and pulled out some of their hair. What now, Nehemiah? You did what? Nehemiah comes back on the scene. He makes a scene by chunking people's stuff out the window. And then he sees the leaders of the church, of the temple, and starts punching them in the face and pulling their beards out. And you and I may think, man, that's extreme. And yes, that is extreme, but he had the authority to do that. The other thing is, if you read those two things, he literally had the authority to stone them. Because when the people of God, you see this in the Old Testament, when the people of God began to worship other gods, the the, uh, punishment for that was stoning. So instead they just got a beating. I'd take a beating over a stoning. And then the thing about ripping their beards out was a symbol of their shame. I mean, I don't know how bad that would look. Could you imagine having like half your beard pulled out? Oh, that's one of those guys. You come out here, all the people in the city talking about, oh, he let that happen in the temple. And Nehemiah ripped his face off. It's pretty awesome. And so Nehemiah goes and he confronts the temple leaders. Here's the deal. We'll turn to Galatians 6, 5. We need confrontation in our life. What Nehemiah, what Paul says about confrontation is this, that when you are confronted and there is conviction and there's repentance, it's fulfilling the law of Christ. That's what Galatians 6, 1 through 5 says. It says, Brothers, if anyone is caught in any trust, transgression, any sin, you who are spiritual, restore him gently. Uh, maybe Nehemiah didn't get that part. That's not very gentle getting. But what he's saying is we, we don't, the, the word gentleness doesn't mean we, we do it um, sheepishly. We, we do it with grace and we do it with care. And that's what Nehemiah was doing to these people. Says verse 2 of Galatians, Bear one another's burdens so what? To fulfill, a cro- fulfill the law of Christ. We need people in our lives to confront us of our sin. I need that in my life. I've got a handful of guys in my life that know everything about me at any moment of the day, and they are confronting me on my sin. I'm not a perfect man. I need other people in my life to look at my life and say, man, Todd, you're, you're going off here and keep me in line with the holiness of God. I need that in my life. I've often said this from this pulpit. Uh, your relationship with Christ uh, is very personal, but it's never meant to be very private. Let me say that one more time. My relationship with Jesus Christ is a very personal relationship with Jesus Christ but it cannot be done in private meaning no one else knows about what God is doing in my life I need people to confront me where I go off I need that over and over and over again so Nehemiah goes and confronts the leaders three different times we see Nehemiah prays here at the end Nehemiah prays uh, at the end remember in verse 14 he says this Remember me, oh my God, concerning this. Concerning what? Concerning me throwing people's stuff out of a house, me beating someone, and me ripping someone's beard off, me confronting them. 
Do not wipe out my good deeds that I have done for the house of my God and for his service. Nehemiah is saying to God, God, if there's anything that I've done that isn't right, remove that from me and just remember the good that was in my heart, the reason that I was doing that. And so for us, the application for this part of this section is this. Is there any sin that's in your life or in my life that needs to be confronted? Is there any ongoing, unconfessed sin in your life, in my life, that needs to be confronted this morning? The, la- the, the, the second to last one is this. Nehemiah confronts the Sabbath. Remember, they had made a promise to God to keep the Sabbath holy, and the reason to keep the Sabbath holy was so they could rest and have devotion with God, so that they would set a day apart to do nothing but to worship God, to engage God, to hear God's word, so that God's word would bring conviction, and through conviction, uh, bring repentance and all of a sudden we see in chapter 13 15 it says in those days I saw Judah the people what were they doing they had a wine press on the Sabbath they were bringing heaps of grain in on the Sabbath they were loading on their donkeys on the Sabbath they had wine grapes and figs and all kinds of loads which they brought into Jerusalem on the Sabbath day they were working they had neglected their devotion to God their rest for God their, their reading of God's word and so Nehemiah confronts that i'm reminded of what jesus tells us in mark chapter 2 27 he says this he says this to the pharisees he says the sabbath was made for man not man for the sabbath god gave us a sabbath day for us so that we could rest and have enjoyment with him now we are on the new covenant that doesn't mean we have to take a sabbath day that it has to be sunday He's saying in the new covenant, hey, just make your lifestyle a lifestyle that has rest and devotion to God. And so for us, the application is this. Do I make time to rest and meditate on God's word? Do I have a Sabbath to do one thing, to rest and meditate on God's word? Remember, God's word is what confronts our sin. We need God's word in our lives on a daily basis as we meditate on it, so that it will expose those places in our heart that are far from him. Again, Nehemiah prays at the end uh, in verse 22. He says this. He challenges them. He says, keep the Sabbath holy. Remember this also in my favor, O my God, and spare me according to the greatness and your steadfast love. What Nehemiah is saying in this passage is this. O God, help me. Help me, God, remember and have mercy on me because apart from you, I can do nothing. Apart from you, God, I can't do any of the things I've just confronted other people with. I need you. I need your mercy and I need your steadfast love. I am desperate for you. I need your holiness. This is what Paul tells us in 1 Corinthians chapter 1, verse 30. He says, and this because of him, God, you were in Christ Jesus and who became to us wisdom from God, righteousness, sanctification, and redemption. We need those things from God and God alone. We need his righteousness, we need his sanctification, and we need his redemption. We cannot redeem ourselves, we cannot sanctify ourselves, and we cannot make ourselves holy. And so Nehemiah is in remembrance of that. God, I'm in great need of your steadfast love. Please, God, pour that out onto me. Next thing we see is this. Nehemiah confronts the people. Yes, he had already confronted the people about their marriages. Now he takes it to another step in verse 23, in those days I saw the Jews had what? They had intermarried. Uh, the women at Ashdod 
uh, Amiad and Moab. And this is the reason he confronts the people. He said, And half of their children spoke the language of the Ashdod, and they could not speak the language of du- Judah, but only the language of each people. They had gotten away from uh, being a holy nation, a chosen nation, a nation that had been set apart. Not that we don't, inter- we don't intermarry to make it unholy. We, we don't intermarry to bring other gods into our lives. And so now all of a sudden, there's just generation of young children that no longer know the Word of God. They no longer have, can even go to God's Word and read God's Word because they don't know the Word of God and what language it was written in. They have, they're biblically illiterate because of the language that they speak. And so, this is what one commentary says. I love it. It says, a single generation compromise could undo the works of centuries. Look at what we live in today. This has happened to us here in America. We're only one generation away from where they took prayer out of school. And that's a small thing, but it is a huge thing. We're one generation of our children are growing up in a system that does not know the Word of God. And there have been generation after generation after generation that was founded on the Word of God, and now we have a generation that is no longer founded on the Word of God. And that's the reason we're in the mess we're in. Here's what one, another commentator says. His name is James Hamilton. He says this, If they, the people of God, lose their language, they lose not only their identity, but their biblical ways of conceptualizing the world. It's what we would say, we lose our biblical worldview. Have we in the church not lost our biblical worldview? My two little kids are going to grow up in a society where they think that homosexual marriages is okay. That's what they're going to go. They're going to go tomorrow, and they're going to go into school, and that's what they're going to teach. They're going to go into school, and they're going to teach something that's so far contrary to the Word of God. I cannot wait, and I'm not looking forward to it all at the same time, where Tennyson comes home and starts talking to me about evolution. And all the other things, all the other places in her life that she's called to be tolerant in. God's Word is not tolerant. But what has happened is, and what's happened here, is Nehemiah, the people in Nehemiah, began to invite outsiders, unbelievers, to marry them, and they let those people not uh, become believers. And because they didn't become believers, they began to teach the children of God something contrary to God's Word, and then they got into a huge mess. Again, it's not about nationality that's the problem. It's about a religious conviction that is no longer there, that's the problem. And we as God's people must be confronted. Do we hold God's word truer than anything else? What does God's word say about certain things? What does God's word say about homosexual marriage? What does God's word say about abortion? What does God's word say? And on and on and on we go. I do not care what the President of the United States says about those things. I care what the word of God says about those things. Amen? 
But do we know God's word enough to say, no, that's contrary to the word of God. That's why being in God's word is so important for us as believers. We must saturate ourselves in God's word. He goes on in chapter 25 and talks to them about repentance and about confrontation and shows them, hey, do you not remember that King Solomon, the wisest guy in all the world, he was living a great life when he was fully devoted to God and then all of a sudden he starts to intermarriage and his life goes to shambles? You see, King uh, Solomon was living a great godly life and then he got a little greedy and started taking in other women and those other women did not know God and then his whole life goes to hell in a handbasket. How come? Because he was no longer centering himself in the wisdom that God had given him to be in his word and he went to his own best thinking. And you read the story of Solomon. His, the rest of his life is in shambles. The moment he starts intermarrying. And it's not because he intermarried, it's because he was disobedient and he polluted the things of God. And so for us, again, is there any, the way that Nehemiah prays at the end of this section, is he just calls them out. These people, once he confronts them, they don't repent. And then Nehemiah prays to God that God would bring judgment on, upon their unrepented lives. So for us this morning is this. Is there any unrepentant sin in our life? Because if there is, the promise is God will judge those places in our lives. You can, you can guarantee that. If there's unrepentant sin in your life, God will deal with it. I've often been told by one of my mentors, he said this to me. He said, trust me, Todd, you want to humble yourself before God before God humiliates you. And being humble for, for God says, God, there's sin in my life. Humiliation comes when he begins to point it out and points it out publicly. I can testify to that. That is not a fun moment. Being a pastor at a church of 2,700 people and there was unconfessed sin in my life that God exposed and that got brought before 2,700 people in one moment. That is not a fun moment. And so will we be a humble people or will God have to bring us to humiliation. Let us be a people that uh, remain uh, in confession and repentance. The last two ones are this. It's the final prayer of the book. Uh, This is what one writer says. It's true. It says the book of Nehemiah begins with a prayer and closes with a prayer. For lasting results, ministry can never be separated from prayer. We must become a praying people. Palace Chapel, will we be known as a praying people? Here's what another writer says. He said, Nehemiah seemed to view the reestablishment of the worship of God in Jerusalem as his major accomplishment, not merely the project of rebuilding the walls. Nehemiah's, from start to finish, was all about the worship of God. Nehemiah was more concerned about the worship of God than he was the rebuilding of the walls. That's the whole reason he went back to Jerusalem. And I wonder for us, are we more concerned with all the things that God has for us? Are we more concerned about our daily devotional lives and our worship to God? Are our lives marked with worship the way Nehemiah's was? Nehemiah, throughout this book, we see it four times here in one chapter. 
He prayed to God, but we've talked about it over and over and acknowledged him. Nehemiah was a man of great prayer. Prayer is a way to worship God. Here's what one writer says in his book. John Piper says this in his book, Let the Nations Be Glad. Maybe this will ruffle our feathers. It says missions is not the ultimate goal of the church. You say that in another way. Outreach is not the ultimate goal of this church. Missions is not the goal of the church. What is? Worship is. Missions exist because worship does not. Worship is ultimately not missions because God is ultimate, not man. You see, when we begin to be a people that worship God with all of our hearts, with all of our minds, with all of our soul, with all of our strengths, our outreach will just be an overflow of our worship to God. We will want the lost world to know about the God that we worship. And so again, let me read that statement one more time. Missions is not the ultimate goal of the church. Worship is. And worship isn't what John does for 20 minutes. It's not what worship is. That's just one component of worship. Worship is not John leading us in a few songs. Worship is my adoration to a holy God. Is every part of my life and everything that I'm doing worshiping a holy God. Like when I pray, that's worship to God. When I read God's word, that's worshiping God. When I sing, that's worshiping God. When I'm confronting and being confronted with sin, that's worshiping God. Like, so let's not think that what John is doing is only worship. That is a small piece of the overarching thing of what worship is. Worship is our adoration and our devotion to a holy God. That is what worship is. And he says, worship is, missions is not the ultimate goal of the church. Worship is. Mission exists because worship does not. And even for us, in those 10 to 20 minutes that John is leading us in the worship, are we really worshiping God? Are we coming here and we folding our arms and waiting for it to get over and waiting for it because we don't like the way he's doing it? Or do we come and say, no, no matter what song is sung, no matter what hymnals open, man, I'm going to church this morning. I'm going to worship a holy God with all of my heart. I am devoted to God. And so for us, Two last things as we close this book of Nehemiah. What areas in my life do I need to go with the help of God to rebuild? Maybe it's worship. And the last one is this. What steps will I take to deal with God and with God's desires to rebuild my life? Remember, Nehemiah went back to the people of God to rebuild the walls of God so that the people of God could worship God. What areas of my life, what areas of your life do I need rebuilding so that I can fully worship God? You see, this morning we're going to come and we're going to take the Lord's Supper. The Lord's Supper is a way to remind us of what the greatness of our God did for us by sacrificing His Son to redeem us and to give us both confession and repentance of sin so that we could live a holy life. It's because of the Lord's Supper, it's because of the great work of the cross that we're even able to worship God. And so now in these few moments, when the deacons come and we pray over the Lord's Supper, as we take the Lord's Supper, let it be our act of worship to God as a remembrance of all that He has done for us. And so for us, where are those areas in my life? Even before I take the Lord's Supper, Paul tells us 
Man, if you come to this table and you're unclean, you are cursed. And so in this moment, as I'm praying, pray to God. If there's any unconfessed sin in your life, confess it to God. Confess it to God. His promise is this in, in 1 John. He is faithful and just to forgive us from all unrighteousness. We just have to do the confession. He does the rest. Let us pray. God, I'm so thankful for this book, these last 13 weeks of journeying through Nehemiah. God, I, I pray that, God, we would see that this book was way more about uh, our lives and rebuilding of walls. That you, God, desire to rebuild those broken down places in our life that keep us from fully worshiping you. So God, as we come to your table this morning, I pray that you would bring conviction, that you'd bring conviction, and we'd hold on to the promise uh, that we've been redeemed and forgiven. God, allow us to be reminded of what Christ did for us, paid the ultimate price so that we could have life. Lead us and guide us, I pray. Amen. Deacons would